You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. I'm Drew Leiter. And I'm Cletus Jacobs. And welcome to episode 366 of the Earth Station DCU. Tonight we're going to talk The Penguin number 5, Amazon's Attack number 3, Alan Scott, The Green Lantern number 3, Action Comics 2023 Annual, Detective Comics 1080, Justice Society of America number 8, The Flash number 4, Titans Beast World number 3, Titans number 6, and Sweet Tooth Season 2 Episode 5, What It Takes. But before we get into that, let's talk some DC news. Alright, Cletus. First up for DC News, Millie Alacock, the House of Dragon star, has been chosen to play Kara Zor-El in the upcoming Supergirl Woman Tomorrow film. James Gunn wrote on social media, Yes, I first became aware of her in House of the Dragon, but was blown away by her varied auditions and screen tests for Supergirl. He added that she embodied the character as envisioned by the comic book writer King, comic book artist Evely, and screenwriter Nagwagwa. I like the casting, Drew. I really liked her in House of Dragon as well. It's the only, I will admit, like James Gunn's the only thing I'm really aware of with her. I am, I'm very hopeful about that project, Drew, because I mean, I, we've stated numerous times on the podcast, I love that Supergirl comic by Tom King. And if it's fair, I mean, you know, it's not going to be 100% the book. I get that. But like, if they adapt it pretty closely, that, that, there's no reason that can't be just an awesome film. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that that movie is well-suited to be adapted to film too, Drew, because it is, one, it's self-contained, right? So it, you don't have, like, some of the other big stories that we've seen adapted in both Marvel and DC have a complete arc, right? But they're still connected to a greater stream of continuity, and you don't necessarily, whatever they're doing in the films, won't line up with some of the extra parts with that. This is completely... And totally contained within itself as a story. And then on top of that, it really doesn't involve almost anything other than Supergirl. So you really, you know what I mean? Like they don't have to change like Civil War, for example, with Marvel is a pretty good adaptation, right? But there are changes to fit what they had available for the films in terms of characters, in terms of status quo that was going on in that world, right? But with this... I mean, there's really nothing holding them back, I don't think. I think that can potentially really free it up to be a pretty faithful adaptation. Yeah, totally agree with you. All right, moving on to our next bit of DC news. Suicide Squad, Kill the Justice League update. Cletus texted me earlier in the week and stated that the game was pulled offline because of a game-breaking glitch. So what's the status of it now, Cletus? Yeah, so towards the beginning of last week, a lot of games, so this was the case with Suicide Squad Kills the Justice League, but a lot of other games have been doing this where they have an early access where people can essentially pay more money to be able to play the game early. And like I said, th this game did that, but they had to pull it offline because there was a game, essentially a game-breaking glitch that auto-completed the game. So as far as like the game was aware, the players had already beat it. Obviously, they hadn't. They just started the game up, which is not great because, again, people are paying extra money on top of a full price game in order to play this early for whatever reason. On top of that, standard practice, not across the board, but generally speaking, large releases like this was, AAA releases, have review copies sent to you know platforms early, review platforms early, so that reviewers can play the game and put a review out, hopefully a day or two before the game comes out. In an ideal world, put a glowing review out, right? So that people see that, like, oh, hey, this game's coming out. Hey, look, there's some reviews. They love it. I'm going to go buy it. Did not. Warner Brothers chose not to do that. No early uh, copies were sent out to reviewers, so no one had reviewed the game. And then the game did finally officially come out um, at the tail end of last week, and it was controversial for fans because there's some story point points in that, specifically that involve Batman that people really didn't like. Kevin Conroy's voice is in the game, and to put it lightly, people didn't feel like that was really pay paying a great homage to him. 
And then the reviews, now that the game is out, people could actually finally review it. And uh, not terrible. I, I'll be honest with you, Drew. I was expecting some, like, catastrophic reviews, but not good. A lot of 5 out of 10s, 4 out of 10, 6 out of 10. So not really what they were looking for with this game. This really, I thought, DC, when we, when we talked about this, Drew, when this first got announced, I thought this had the potential to be a huge game for both the, you know, the DC brand but also for Warner Brother games and uh, nah, no. <laughs> Alrighty then. <laughs> All right, and then moving on to our last bit of DC news: ESPN, Fox, Warner Brothers are to launch a new streaming service. So, what's this all about, Cletus? Because you kind of gave me a heads up about it right before the podcast. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about this. It's not directly related to DC, so it's a little bit outside the purview of our podcast, but it still impacts, you know, the company, the parent company that, you know, controls the 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 stuff that we love so much. This this combined platform is sports specific as ESPN would suggest, combining all of the different live networks that would fall under, you know, Disney's, Warner Brothers and Fox's purview. All of those are going to get bundled together almost like a cable package it's almost drew like we're in a new era of cable but you know who's to say there (laughs) and that people will hypothetically obviously it's early stages but people will be able to bundle this sports platform with disney plus with hulu with max and i thought it was worth discussing because max max release was a little bit shaky right like it's not I don't, I mean, I, I personally believe in the platform because I think they have some of the best IP, you know, in the business with HBO, with all of the DC stuff. There's a lot to really like there, but we've also discussed our opinions of the leadership of Warner Brothers Discovery. So <laughs> I think this is interesting, Drew, because this could, I'm, you know, all three of the companies are getting in on this because they think that this will be the, the money influx that they need to kind of keep their streaming stuff going because Disney Plus is not as profitable or profitable at all like they thought. Discovery is clearly struggling. Fox isn't really fully in on anything streaming right other than you know being i think partnered with hulu so this is definitely you know these three wouldn't join together because they have very vested interest in making their own money if they thought that they had a better option so i'm curious to see how this goes and i do wonder drew like if it's not well received i think it probably will be because sports sells right now i don't i would be a little bit shaky about all of these streaming platforms at that point yeah, it's it's interesting, that's for sure. I mean, bundle together all the sports channels like that, people are going to go for it. So, I guess it's something we're just going to have to watch and see what happens. Yeah, I I'm just I'm very curious Drew Drew where that's going to go because we know like one of the big selling points for Hulu is their live TV package. Like do people stop getting that? Because I know like for me, we that's what we do. I mean, we watch other things on TV also, but sports is really the main like live thing that we want to watch. I don't know. It's going to be kind of. I'm. I'm very interested to see how this impacts the the kind of the streaming companies across the board. I think again, not DC related specifically, but I think it definitely bears keeping an eye on because I think it really. We could be seeing some interesting changes. I think within the next year or two with all of these platforms. Yeah, I agree with you. All right. Well, that wraps up DC news for this week. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll do our comics talk. Hey, Joe. Hey, Tony. Do you like ads about podcasts? You know it. How about ads about Doctor Who podcasts? Even better. Well, you're in luck, because this is an ad about a Doctor Who podcast. Wow, I love it. And you'll love us, the Watchathon of Rassilon, a podcast about Doctor Who. I'll buy 12. Actually, it's free. I'll buy 13, then. What's new on the 42 cast? Let's ask my co-hosts. We're talking about Doctor Who. Comic book shows and movies. And we're talking about all things Star Trek. (laughs) And so much more. Check us out on Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and iTunes. It's only on the 42Cast, your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. So Nathan, when are we finally talking Babylon 5? And we're back. But before we get into this week's comic books talk, we gotta let you know, there's gonna be spoilers. We got spoilers, 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 
We've got spoilers for you. We've got spoilers. Spoilers. We've got spoilers for you. For you. All right, let's talk the penguin number five. Mr. Needham, a.k.a. the Black Spider, has dinner with the penguin. Black Spider tells Penguin how he was hired by his kids, Aiden and Addison Cobblepot, to hit one of Falcone's drug operations. His orders were to leave one of them alive to spread the message. Instead, he kills them all and decides to leave a note. When Black Spider goes to collect his pay, he is told that the job is only half done. They give him 40 milligrams of venom and tell him to earn the other half, he'll have to do another job. Black Spider takes the venom and goes home to his apartment. His boyfriend Daniel needs it. He has a disease that causes cramping, seizures, and paralysis. Black Spider goes out the next night and does another job for the Penguin's kids. Once again, he ends up shooting everyone. Batman shows up and they fight. Black Spider is losing and decides to jump into the river. Black Spider swims down so far that he almost passes out from holding his breath. The currents are unpredictable, giving him a chance to get away from Batman. Black Spider bums around Gotham for three days to make sure Batman wasn't following him, and when he gets home, Daniel has been kidnapped by the Penguin's kids. Black Spider takes a beating from Penguin's kids. He accepts another job from them and asks to see Daniel before he goes out. After his story is complete, Black Spider tells Penguin he is his guy on the inside. Penguin smiles and tells the help he now has his spy. The Penguin is ready to return to Gotham City. To be continued. Drew, I really liked this one. I mean, I've really enjoyed the entire Penguin run so far. This one was cool. I'm not super familiar with this character. I don't know if you had read him in some books before, but I, I loved what we got in this. Seeing his, like, just... It was similar to Batman, right? And that just sort of irrational, like, desire for justice in his mind, but even obviously far more warped than what you see with Batman, where it was addicts. He just could not tolerate them living, right? If they were addicted to something, he had to kill them. And you could see in that itself his own addiction popping up in that. And he talks about, you know, previously being addicted, but then you can see he's addicted to killing within the comic. And I love that King leaves that unsaid. I think he does clearly enough to show you that but he doesn't slap the reader across the face with it either just a really good book i I am just really really enjoying penguin i'm pretty sure i've seen this character around somewhere before so oh yeah i have no doubt that he he's a pre-existing character i was just not personally familiar with him now i I thought this was interesting because you know basically in this issue we have him he's sitting across the table from the penguin the whole time this is what I thought was cool about this issue was listening to a story from Penguin's point of view because basically all the artwork shows Penguin staring at him or watching him this whole time while he's telling the story. So I found that interesting. So yeah, it was, this is a pretty good issue. All right, well, let's move on to our next issue for this week Amazon's Attack Number Three, Akaheim, home of the Esquisita. Faruka tells Queen Nubia that the only clue they have to the Esquisita's disappearance are torches scattered around the ruins. Mary reveals that she scouted all night and was unable to find any sign of the Esquisita or their potential attackers. Nubia reveals that two days ago, an earthquake hit Greece and unearthed an ancient temple. The same day, the apples of discord appear, and people start getting possessed. Nubia suspects that the earthquake unearthed the temple to Ares. Nubia tells Mary and Yara to investigate Savannah while she and Faruka go to Greece. Hoppy the bunny teleports Queen Nubia and Faruka to, free, to Greece. There they discover a refugee camp run by Ismene D'Amikos, a one-time professor of Greek mythology. She is now a current United Nations ambassador and appointee to run the Amazon refugee camp. Axe is not welcome in Greece. Ismene reveals that there are no temples of Ares. To the ancient Greeks, Ares was the goddess who embodied everything wrong with the world, and they wanted her as far away as possible. Ares is welcome nowhere but the Garden of Hesperides in the Atlas Mountains where her golden apples grow. Nubia decides that is where they must go. Bel Reeve Penitentiary 
Mary Bromfield goes to visit Dr. Savannah by herself because Yara insisted on finding her sisters instead of helping Mary as Nubia commanded. Dr. Savannah tries to convince Mary to join her, but Mary refuses. Dr. Savannah states she made a deal for cold, hard cash. She didn't make a deal with Ares, but with someone else. Dr. Savannah has taken control of the guards and called in Axe. Mary runs for her life while Dr. Savannah escapes. Nubia, Faruka, and Hoppy arrive at the Garden of Hesperides. There is an explosion and Nubia disappears. Faruka discovers a large tree with golden apples. Pinned to the trunk of the tree seems to be the dead body of Ares. If Ares is not using the apples discord, then who is? The twists and turns continue in Amazon's Attack number 4. It was a very cool twist at the end of the book, Drew. I will admit, I felt like maybe the comic laid some breadcrumbs as to who the real culprit is, but I was not picking up on them. Yeah, I noticed they were trying to leave some clues too, but I wasn't sure who was behind this either. Somebody powerful, if it's a, if they're power, powerful enough to stop a god. <laughs> so Yeah, yeah. We've seen Hera as an antagonist in the past. I'm wonder I had wondered if she might be behind this. It feels really quick for it to be her again though. That is true. I, I agree, Drew. I mean it's I it you cannot rule it out and I, I I don't disagree with you on that. Hera does seem like a possible candidate, but to me that would feel almost too fast. I mean, because we had such a major storyline, one Roman storyline based around her that would feel abrupt, um, I would think. But but not necessarily to say that's not her. So it's got to be pow- somebody powerful enough to take out a god. So yeah. I'm very curious who it is. Overall, this was a pretty interesting issue, and I'm looking forward to seeing more of this. All right, well, let's move on to our next title for this week Alan Scott, The Green Lantern, number three. Alan Scott discovers that his friend Tommy is dead. The Green Lantern goes to the morgue to look for clues with the help of Jay Garrick, The Flash. Jay tells Alan that if no one else is going to investigate this, then the JSA will. Alan tells Jay that he shouldn't have called him. He'll handle this one alone. Jay tells him it's too late. It was already assigned at the last meeting that Alan missed. The Spectre is on the case. The Spectre and Green Lantern go to the first precinct and find an empty case file for Tommy. Green Lantern doesn't understand why the case file would be here instead of at the 10th precinct where the murder happened. The Spectre suspects file tampering to cast suspicion elsewhere, like to Alan Scott. The Green Lantern reveals that the victim's death were styled after that of Alan Scott's first love, Johnny Ladd, which sent him to an asylum that he escaped from. The Spectre states that their next move should be to track down and question the 42 officers and crewmen who served with him on that ship. And if it wasn't one of them, the next step is to identify every government official with a high enough security clearance to have read the Project Crimson report. The Green Lantern gets a hunch and heads home. The Green Lantern comes home to discover Johnny Ladd standing in his home. Johnny punches him and calls him my love. Next, red light, green light. A couple things I wanted to mention in this, Drew, that... I found interesting. One, did you catch on the cover of this, it was labeled three of six? No, I didn't. So that was interesting. And I wonder, we've had this a couple times, Drew, and it makes me wonder, was this always meant to be a six-issue miniseries? And they're trying to, they like the next marketing ploy, so to speak, is to hide that these are miniseries and hope that more people buy them. I don't know. I don't really like that. Like, if it's a miniseries, you should just be open about it because it, I think it changes the way you read these. It does for me. Like, if I know I'm only getting six issues, I'm reading the story and anticipating the story to flow in a different way than if it's meant to be a long-term story. It makes sense. I, I think that it is ideal to be a short, uh, you know, a mini series, but it's very interesting, Drew, to me that this is, I'm, I'm almost positive. This is the first one that got labeled as such. That's That's interesting. Cause I thought this was an ongoing. So this is another time where we've seen where we thought an ongoing became a mini series. This isn't the first time we see a red lantern this week. Yeah. So I, I wondered if they put this origin story out to kind of tie it into what's going on in the regular JSA title. I would think so. And they didn't really 
I know we're not totally lined up with when books are coming out, but they did not line it up very well either because the Red Lantern that we get later in JSA is referencing a completed story and the, the story is not complete. So not great timing that again feels avoided, but we've talked about this before where it feels like the DC could have avoided these scenarios, but here we are. Not a big deal, but a little annoying. The other thing I did, I wanted to mention, Drew, is I really liked Spectre in this. I It made me want an old school Spectre comic. I've referenced before on the podcast, DC, you know, obviously there's a lot of animated films, but they've also put out some shorts. And they had at least a couple where they were just like a collection of shorts. And one of them was the Spectre, which I love. I don't know. I think you've seen it too, right? It's like a 10, 15 minute short film. I'm trying to think. I don't think I have. It's a very, like, it's a classic, like, 1950s crime noir style. Feels like a, like an L.A. Confidential, but with the Spectre. If you haven't, go go check it out, Drew. I'm sure you can find it on Max. You can probably even find it on YouTube. It's not super long, but it's so good. It's one of my favorite animated things, honestly, that DC's done, because it's a very compact story, obviously, but because of that, the story is just tight and it's snappy. And it is perfectly old school Spectre. I don't know if you've read a lot of like Silver Age 1970s Spectre comics, but they are pretty brutal. It, you know, bordering on horror comics in in some regards, and not you know not gruesome necessarily, but very much up. You know, I thought we got that in this in this book. That first encounter with the Spectre drew that felt like like old school specter like something you'd read from an old silver age specter comic book and i loved it i would love to get someone whether it's this writer or someone else to do not only a specter book but do it like a classic specter i would eat that up i really enjoyed the specter in this issue also and honestly it felt like he kind of stole the story (laughs) if you ask me he kind of just kind of came in and took over and you know, Alan Scott was basically following his lead because the Spectre was pretty much solving the case. I really enjoyed this issue a lot. Yeah, and I think, yeah, and I agree with you, Drew, because I thought this, the Spectre kind of stole the spotlight, but in a good way. He was so good and was so engaging as a character. I did think they balanced it well because, obviously, you know, you and I were both very drawn to the Spectre, but Alan Scott was still very involved in the plot. They didn't forget about him. This was This was probably my favorite issue that we've gotten so far, and... I like I said I had some I, I had some problems with how issue one ended because it was so kind of confusing and felt out of left field. But issue two I thought really kind of focused and told a very straightforward story. We got the same thing in this issue with just a phenomenal A plus guest appearance. I I like that this is a mini series, Drew, but I do really think that it's found its footing these these last couple issues. Yeah, I can't disagree with you on that. All right, well, let's move on to our next title for this week. Action Comics 2023 Annual. Earth Al Ghul. Superman, Bloodwind, and Etrigan save a family from being killed for not giving up their son to the Al Ghuls. The family gives them directions to the Al Ghul Citadel. White's Tomb. Elsewhere on Earth Al Ghul. Sister Shadow uses her power to convince Otho Ra that she is fighting on Warworld. Sister Shadow believes she is almost ready for the ritual where she takes over her body. Superman, Bloodwind, Superman and Bloodwind fight the Al Ghul forces while Etrigan enters White's tomb to save Otho Ra. Etrigan takes down all of Sister Shadow's servants but is stabbed in the back by Otho Ra. Superman appears and Otho Ra attacks him believing he is Mongol. Superman and Otho Ra fight until Superman is able to break through the illusions. Sister Shadow transforms into a demon creature and orders her Empire of Shadows to attack Earth-Zero. Earth-Zero, Metropolis, A-Town. The Super Family is fighting back against the Blue Earthers. Suddenly, Sister Shadow's forces arrive and begin attacking Metropolis. The Blue Earthers realize it's Nora Stone, their leader, attacking them with an alien force. The Blue Earthers join the Super Family in defending Earth. Osul Ra attacks Sister Shadow, demanding to know where his sister is. Sister Shadow realizes that Osul Ra is powerful too and decides to take him as her vessel. Superman and Otha Ra appear. Superman attacks Sister Shadow while Otha Ra reunites with her brother. With the combined forces of the Super Family, the Blue Earthers, Bloodwind, and Etrigan, 
the invasion of the Al Ghouls is stopped. Etrigan sends Sister Shadow's soul to hell. As she is leaving this realm, Sister Soul promises Superman that the Empire of Shadows will claim this world. You and I are not done. One week later, the restoration of effort continues as Metropolis is being rebuilt. Superman overhears a son talking with his father that he is glad to belong to the greatest city in the world because thanks to Superman, it's better with us in it. I didn't think that this was a bad issue by any means, Drew, but it was just too quick. It was too rushed. And we knew this was coming, that the story was, I mean, the, the creative team is changing, so they had to wrap up the story that they were trying to tell, but everything just progressed way too fast. And not just within this issue, but with this plot line, it was clearly meant to be more issues than what we got. So I feel for the creative team, Drew. I didn't love the story that we were getting, but, you know, given more time to breathe, I think they could have done some interesting things with that. As it stands, it's certainly not the worst Superman comic I've read by any means. Williamson's doing a phenomenal job with that, but... uh... It was just, it was disappointing, Drew, and I really, again, I can't really blame the writers. I thought they did the best that they could, relatively speaking, but it just was not very satisfying because everything just kind of came to a head so quickly. I thought the plot resolved itself very easily, comparatively. Like, obviously, of course, Superman's going to win, right? Like, I get, I'm not expecting something different there, but you know what I mean? Like, it felt like we were hitting, like, the hard times of the story, so to speak, and it was instantly fixed, this issue, which, again... It had to be. They didn't really have a choice, but that doesn't necessarily make it satisfying either. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, we've seen this creative team, what they did with the War World story, and that was really good. Yeah, and that was a slow burn. I mean, that took a long time for them to work through it. And in a good way, it paid off uh, that pace, and they just weren't given that opportunity with this story. Yeah, so this could have been a lot better story if they would have been able to do it in the time they were planning to do it in. So, yeah. Like you said, it wasn't bad, but it wasn't the greatest either because it just wrapped up really quick. So it's a shame, but we've seen it happen before and it'll happen again. Yep. All right, well, let's move on to our next title for this week, Detective Comics 1080. Jim Gordon and Selina Kyle drive Batman's body through the city toward the Gotham Harbor. A van is in pursuit. Selina tells Jim to at least make it to a Paro Bridge. A man fires a bazooka at their van, taking out their back wheel. Their van flips on its side and crashes. Jim and Selina exit the van as the masked man, Niang, and his horde of soldiers approach. Niang demands that they hand over Batman's body, but Selina yells back over her dead body. Niang orders his men to shoot her, but the soldier besides him falls over dead. Two-Face appears with his own horde of men, as well as strategically placed snipers. Two-Face tells Niang, that if he makes it out of there alive, to tell the Wolfman that he has a score to settle with him. Two-Face blows up the bridge as Jim and Selina escape. Back at the Orgam's place, the Queen asks for an update on Batman's body. Arzen explains that Niang found them, but Harvey Dent intervened and they got away. The Queen notices that Arzen is not upset. Arzen explains that they got what they wanted. Gotham thinks Batman is dead. Even if Batman returns... Gotham will have changed and forgotten him. The reality engine will turn the city to their designs, and Batman will no longer be a part of it. They have killed the mask, but Arzen states he has taken no pleasure in killing the man. The Queen states that each day Arzen sounds more like his father. She offers him a celebratory drink, and as they drink, the Queen reveals that there are other Thelomus engines. Gotham is just the beginning. She plans on taking Star City and Hub City as well. Next, the Queen reveals that she killed Arzen's father for their future. Arzen realizes he's been poisoned. Queen states she knows it was Arzen who betrayed her because they couldn't have possibly known their plans if someone hadn't told them in advance. Eastside Docks, Gotham City. Selina meets with Talia al Ghul. Selina reveals to Talia that Batman is still alive, but they cannot wake him yet. They broke him and Selina doesn't know how to put him back together. Talia states Batman has been broken before, and he has returned many times. They must let Batman put himself back together. They must let him become what he will be. After heading out to sea, Talia's boat eventually comes across the storm that wrecks it. With a single lifeboat, Talia and Batman's body are lost at sea. Talia knows this is only the beginning. Back in Gotham, 
the city begins to forget Batman. Not all at once, but in pieces. No one questions the absence, but yet there are those who refuse to forget, and sometimes Batman is spoken of. Elsewhere, Simon Hurt sends the flamingo after the Al Ghul woman, while he prepares to bring forth the son he always wanted. Wayne Manor grounds. Commissioner Montoya is investigating the site where they found Henry Fielding's body, shot four times, one in the back and three center mass. He was left in the rain to bleed out among the gravestones. Montoya believes his blood is on her hands because he wanted to off the detail and she told him no. There are questions that need to be answered and the question will find them. To be continued. We also had a backup story called Elysia. Damien is scared of a story his mother told him and doesn't know how to move past it. Drew, I wanted to talk about the backup story first real quick. I really enjoyed it. It was a nice, self-contained story, and I loved the sort of core message behind it. It was sort of a nice reminder to kind of recharacterize or, or remind you know, the reader what Damien is at his core, right? He's a kid. He's a 10-year-old kid. And I loved that that was the core of the story, was that he was told when he was younger... He was told a scary story by his mom, and it gave him nightmares. And obviously within the world that he's being raised in, that's unacceptable. But that nightmare comes back you know, in the present day, and it keeps him up for the rest of the night. Because ultimately, he's still 10. And that was sort of the message of the story, and I loved that, Drew. I loved that. Because I don't feel like other writers wouldn't name any names in particular, sometimes forget that he is still supposed to be a kid. And I know which writer you're talking about. I, I don't know how you could possibly guess. <laughs> now, I recognize that story. We had read it before. Not It's not exactly the same, but the story that Damien's mother told him, we've yes, seen that story yeah, before. That we had gotten like a longer version of that story before, right? Yeah. That was Yeah, I thought it sounded familiar. So I thought that was interesting. That's what I liked about it is we'd actually seen that story before and then they put it in this context with this Damien story. I thought that was pretty good too. Now, <laughs> the main story was fine, but I got to tell you, it seemed to drag on a little too much at the end there. And I thought it got a little ridiculous with the Talia part of it, with the ship going in the storm and her rowing off with Batman by herself. And then we kind of sped time going quickly in Gotham where people are forgetting Batman. And then the Montoya thing was interesting, but it, it felt like it was all crammed in there. There, were, I thought there was too much in this issue. I thought it should have ended with Talia just taking Batman's body. Yeah, I yeah I would agree that but that felt I, that almost felt Drew like a sort of a yada yada so that they can jump ahead next issue and not have to cover that is what it felt like to me. I, I agree completely. It felt tacked on, but I also wondered when I read it, I was like, it feels, I think Rom V doesn't want to talk about that at length. And if he cuts it off when, when Talia picks him up, he's almost obligated in a sense to cover that a little bit more next issue, right? And I don't think he wanted to. <laughs> I can understand that. I didn't really want to read it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> I was very... I, I honestly, Drew, I was surprised at Argum's death. I didn't think he would die. We, you and I discussed at length. We both knew that he was in on the plot to, to free Bruce. So that obviously was not a surprise to either of us. Nor do I think that Ron V was trying to hide it. Uh, but I didn't think he was going to die. That I really was caught off guard by that. Same here. I was caught off guard by that, too. I was, I was surprised that she wanted to kill him. So, but... You know, what we learn from her is she's been alive for a long time and obviously doesn't care if she has to get a new family. She just wants to achieve her goals anyway, by any means necessary. Definitely established herself as the major villain of the plot moving forward. So that's that's going to be interesting to see. Yeah, it'll also be interesting to see the return of Batman. So I, I'm curious with the time jump, are we going to see Bruce... Bruce getting rebuilding himself away from Gotham or is Rom V just going to jump back into Batman's return it'll be interesting to see because we, like you said it felt like he wants to kind of time jump when we return so I yeah I I wonder Drew 
the one thing that's been interesting with this is that Detective Comics has been very much telling its own story, right? And Zdarsky has been telling his own story in Batman. And there's been some crossover between the two, don't get me wrong. But for the most part, they've kind of been their own thing. And I, I do wonder at some point where that's... I mean, I feel like we've already gotten to a point where it's a little bit confusing because they're really, I think, diverging in story. You've got one with Batman Zero and R really being the main driving force of that story. Batman's missing a freaking hand, which I still don't think has been addressed by anybody other than Zdarsky. And then this other one, we've got the continue... the Really, Rom V, we're seeing... We talked about this as diving into Grant Morrison stuff, right? And we're getting... Barbados really seems to be coming back um, at the end of this story. We've got Dr. Hurt, who I referenced. I think we saw first pop up in the annual coming back. I'm very excited, Drew, for what Detective Comics is doing, but I do wonder at some point if we're going to have some sort of reckoning with them trying to line up the two stories. Maybe. Maybe they'll just keep diverging for now until... Yeah, Yeah, I mean, to be fair, the only really major thing that is Batman's hand, but... (laughs) Other than that, there's no real need for you know them to be one to one in terms of where the story's at. Yeah, I, I wonder if Zdarsky's stories after he's done on the title, if uh, Batman's hand is magically back to normal. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me, but that was one of my huge problems with that plot line in the first place, Drew. Because that's, I mean, you're cutting Batman's hand off. That is such a... It would be like doing something major physically to Superman, too, right? Like if Superman just didn't have a leg. You you have to address that. And every other... Superman is in so many books, and now all these other books would have to address the fact that Superman is a peg leg, right? Like... <laughs> Uh, it, that was my big problem with the Batman thing was that that's a like that's not a small thing. I know it's not necessarily world breaking, right? But Batman getting his hand cut off, Drew, is not small. And again, that affects countless books. Batman's in everything. I just didn't feel it didn't feel, frankly, Drew, that important to the story. It, Zdarsky himself has done almost nothing with that. It just felt like it was for shock factor with no kind of regard to what that did for everybody else. And that kind of creative decision, I really hate when it comes to continuity-based comics because you're forcing everybody else to bend to the thing that you just did. And as far as we've seen, maybe something will change, Drew, but he's not done anything really that interesting with that status quo. There's been like a handful of times that a villain has tried to punch that hand and they've been surprised that it's metallic, right? But that's it. Like that's not to me, that is not enough to justify that plot line. I agree with you. And as we've noticed, everybody else is ignoring it for right now. Yeah. So I have I have a funny feeling it's just gonna go away. Unexplained. Yeah. <laughs> so. I, I you know, I really wouldn't blame him. All right, well, let's move on to our next title for this week, Justice Society of America number 8. JSA Headquarters, Huntress tells the others about the Red Lantern, Ruby Sokov. She inherited her powers from her father, and they manifested themselves when she was 13 years old. She killed 23 people, including her foster parents, in the blast. The Russians attempted to contain Ruby, but she fled killing seven more people. After discovering her biological father's identity, Ruby went searching for him, the Red Lantern. Alan Scott states the Red Lantern is dead. Alan watched him implode into nothing back in 1948. Huntress disagrees, stating there were sightings in her time. Alan states that sightings are not facts. The Red Lantern is one of the oldest adversaries to the JSA. He was a notorious and ruthless Soviet spy who gained possession of a violent energy source that became the opposite of Alan. The hunter states that Ruby can be an ally. In her time, Ruby has changed. Alan states that the Huntress's time doesn't exist anymore. The Huntress wants to recruit the villains that were part of her team 25 years from now, but the encounter last issue with Solomon Grundy proved that they are not the people she knows. Alan tells Huntress to leave Ruby off her list. Alan goes to Russia by himself to confront Ruby. Alan states that despite what she believes, her father is not being held in prison. He is dead. Ruby states that is a lie. That's all she's been fed her entire life is lies. The two battle until Alan gets the upper hand. 
Alan takes Ruby to a bar in a Russian town where no one is looking for them. Using his ring, Alan casts an illusion so no one in the bar will recognize him. Alan asks Ruby to turn herself in. She refuses. Alan decides to take Ruby back to the JSA so she can talk with the Huntress. Another man watches as Green Lantern and Red Lantern leave the bar together. He is disappointed that Alan Scott reached the Red Lantern before he did and reports back to the Legion of Superheroes. Next, the Harley Quinn son versus everybody. This story pretty much gave away, like you said earlier, gave away the history of the Red Lantern if you didn't know it. Yeah, and that was sort of my problem. Like I said, I mean, we can kind of assume where the story was going, but it's annoying, right? Like, uh, <laughs> these these could have lined up better, but, and I don't know, I don't know who's at fault here with that. I don't know if, you know, the JSA plot line is being accelerated because Johns is leaving or not. I don't really know. You know what I mean? But it's still annoying, too, because that Green Lantern story is not done. I know we're not, you know, exactly up to date where, where DC's at, but we are not that far behind. That story is not done. These books came out the same week. When I picked the books that we review, Cletus, the, all the books are coming out the same week. It's not like Wait, I'm, no, no, I'm saying, but like even as we're recording, the Green Lantern book is still not done. Well, yeah. We're probably we're probably about a month behind what books are coming out. So that's for and that's frustrating because that you know even if we're even if we were one more issue into Green Lantern, that's still two left, two left in that story, and we're already so three months before the conclusion of that story. We're like you said, giving away the ending in some ways, which is maybe not you know the fate of Red Lantern being that big of a deal, but it's still like come on, guys. Yeah, I had no clue that the Red Lantern was a Russian spy. This story gave it away. I don't ever remember reading anything about the Red Lantern in my reading history. So, you know, this is basically my introduction to the character. And it kind of got spoiled. <laughs> I think it's new. I think it's new. I think there was a... You could kind of piece together that, given the time era and Red, like you could, you know... But again, you didn't know for sure. I didn't know for sure. We do now. <laughs> That we do. Drew, I can't help but feel like this book has been spinning its wheels a little bit. Is that just me? I just, I don't really feel like we've made a lot of meaningful progress in this story, which could potentially be fine. If there was going to be a lot of room for this story to breathe and go, I'd be okay with the sort of slow setup. I don't know that that's what we're going to get, though. Honestly, Cletus, I, I am not liking the story that much, only because... I have no interest in seeing a bunch of villains be recruited to the JSA. We've got enough characters on the JSA now that I'd rather them focus on instead yeah. of trying to bring in villains. I'm, I'm just I, not interested in it. I don't really care about the Huntress's future team. Those are characters I'm not wanting to see on the JSA, honestly. Well, that's a great point you raised there, Drew, too. On top of that, th th these aren't characters that are getting a lot of spotlight. The whole reason that they're doing this book in the first place is to sort of Put the JSA back out there to rediscover and re-explore these characters. And like you said, instead we're spending all this time introducing new characters that I don't know or I don't care as much about. And I just, not to say that I can't potentially care about them, but like you said, that's not what's supposed to be theoretically the point of the book. So, this is another book I've been debating. Do I want to really keep reading it or not? <laughs> I still want to continue on with at least the next issue, see if I want to keep even reading it. Yeah, I want to keep with it for now. Mostly, I'm going to be honest with you, mostly because I'm just really curious what that, what what is it going to look like? You know, how long are we going to get John's on this book? I, I genuinely have no idea. I don't either. I'm not even sure exactly where they're going with this book. If he's wanting to recruit the Huntress's team, or is that going to fail? I, I don't even know where they're going. So it'll be interesting to see. All right, well, let's move on to our next title for this week, The Flash Number 4. Irie West wakes up when her dad goes downstairs and sits at the table. Irie goes to ask her dad if he is all right when he disappears before her eyes. Irie looks at the newspaper articles that her dad has scattered around in front of him and notices one about a guy named Chad. Wally has returned to the place of serenity because he can't keep this place out of his head. The place where there are flowers and statues of speedsters. Last time, Flash almost lost himself there. 
He tries tying up his thoughts so he doesn't lose them, and a voice reaches out to him. Meanwhile, Irie finds herself at an abandoned building. She runs into Liberty Bell, who tells her that Uncle Barry sent her to investigate something speed forcey. The cops just raided this place, finding drugs and guns. The speedsters hear someone and see a woman inject herself. She speeds away and the speedsters chase after her. When they finally catch up to her, the woman tries to stab Irie. Irie goes intangible and the woman just passes through her. As she does, Irie pickpockets her, stealing the device she injected herself with. Irie traces the drug to another building. Liberty Bell suggests contacting Wally, but Irie states he is busy and rushes into the building. Irie finds Mirror Master. Mirror Master throws a grenade at Irie. Back in the Serenity Garden, Wally sees a statue of Irie. The voice tells him the statues are a labyrinth of doorways, each leading to the temple of his heart. Wally realizes that Irie is in trouble and goes through the portal. Wally saves Irie from the grenade. Mirror Master and his lab disappear. Liberty Bell states that she thinks Mirror Master turned the Speed Force into some sort of drug. Irie states that the Mirror Master was expecting Wally to show up. To be continued. Are we 100% sure that Grant Morrison isn't writing this book? I know, really? <laughs> I mean, this is, I, I don't, and I, to be clear, I don't mean this in a, in a criticism, but this, it, it really feels like we're reading the Flash version of that Green Lantern run. I mean, it is out there. I'm enjoying it. To be clear, I am not criticizing the book, but like, if you, if you didn't tell me who the creative team was on this, if you asked me, I would, without question, Drew, I would have immediately said Morrison. I know, it does feel like his style, doesn't it? it? Yeah. Honestly, really interesting concept. I loved the idea, artistically, of Flash grabbing his thought bubbles and tying them together. Like, that was such an inspired comic book idea, Drew. That was awesome. And this idea of him being in this sort of realm of not thought, but ideas interesting you know i don't i won't pretend to fully understand it but i like it and i know i said the same thing oftentimes when we were reading green lantern i was like i don't know that i get it but i like it i thought this issue was a little easier to understand the previous one yes i agree i agree and it helped because half of the 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 wally half i thought was just as sort of obtuse and hard to understand, right? But the the Irie half of the story was very clear and was a much more straightforward Flash comic book adventure, right? I, again, not to say I didn't like the Wally stuff, but that was the harder part to follow, but I think it was easier overall because that was only half the story instead of the whole story. I was very curious if the voice he was hearing was Max or not, and I was kind of expecting him to maybe find him, but that didn't happen, so it, it possibly could not be. I, I was just curious if it was, so. Yeah, I don't know. But it'll be interesting to see what happens next. All right, well, let's move on to our next title for this week, Titans Beast World number three, Condock. Starfire and Donna Troy are fighting a beast version of Black Adam. Oracle warns them to get out of there before they are infected by the spores. Starfire tells Donna to get close to her. Starfire gives off a burst of heat, killing the spores in the vicinity. Dead spores fall to the earth like rain. The Flash, Wally West, and Impulse help evacuate the uninfected. Raven asks Donna Troy to come to space. Starfire tells her to go. She can handle Black Adam. Titan's Tower Nightwing has called in Dr. Bridget Clancy to help research Wolf Batman and find a way to help all who have been infected. Dr. Clancy works with infectious diseases as well as lives in Dick Grayson's building. Dr. Clancy reveals that she knows that Nightwing is Dick Grayson. Detective Chimp shows up at Titan's Tower stating he knows the world looks like chaos, but the creatures have an agenda. They are attacking infrastructure and that motivation is not coming from them. Elsewhere, a passenger plane is attacked by a flock of hybrid birds. The plane starts to go down when Power Girl arrives to save it. As Power Girl is setting the plane down, a spore leaves one of the hybrids and goes into Power Girl's mouth. She is now infected. Superman John Kent arrives to help the passengers when he is attacked by the Power Girl hybrid. John Kent transforms into Superman Blue and chases after the Power Girl hybrid. 
Starfire continues to battle Black Adam when he decides to fly away. It's a fight-or-flight instinct. In space, Superman, the Captain, Mary Marvel, Green Lantern, Alan Scott, Martian Manhunter, and Raven attempt to stop Garo as he heads towards Earth. When Donna Troy arrives, Raven tells the others to stop the attack and retreat. Donna Troy uses her lasso of persuasion on one of Garo's limbs. She seems to have stopped him, but only momentarily. Strikers Island Penitentiary Peacemaker and his men are being attacked by shark hybrids, while Amanda Waller enters the prison. Waller is here to see Lex Luthor because she wants something he stole from Batman. Beast Boy served his purpose. Amanda Waller wanted the people to see their heroes as monsters like she did. Now it's time to slay Beast Boy. To be continued. I don't know, Cletus, if I can buy that Amanda Waller would be behind this. I think, Drew, the kind of issue that I had with this was it's something that we've seen really line-wide, company-wide, with Amanda. their approach to Amanda Waller is beyond just antagonistic and really outright villain. We've seen it in the film properties. I, we've seen it in multiple comics and in multiple versions, too, even including Tom Taylor's medieval Justice League, right? Knights of Steel. I don't view her as an outright villain, Drew. Is that, I mean, maybe I, you know, maybe people would disagree with me on that. Absolutely antagonistic, but I always felt like there was a... She was like Machiavellian, right? Like the, the ends justify the means, that it was always about, in her mind, what she perceived to be the greater good. And I don't feel like that's... Tom Taylor clearly does not have that read on that character because both in his Knights of Steel... And in this book, I, I don't know how else to categorize her other than just outright villain. I know. That's, that's what I thought, too. And I, I don't see her that way either. I see her as antagonistic to her own ends, but not an outright villain. And that's basically how she's being portrayed. I know sometimes she can be anti-hero, but it, only when she's not in control. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I, yeah, I'm with you. I just the the she I I know that she is certainly willing to do unsavory things to achieve her ends. Don't get me wrong here, but her ends here seems to be to murder the Justice League, and like the comic says, to get permission from the public essentially to murder the Justice League. And I, that does not, to me, line up at all with my understanding of that character. And the problem I had with it is they're making it seem like Amanda Waller was behind this, but to me it felt like Brother Eternity was the one that started this. But it's not even Brother Eternity. Oh, sorry, we haven't got to that. We haven't got to that yet. <laughs> <laughs> Spoilers. Yeah, I, I I will say, Drew, and we'll I, when we get to the the next issue that we're going to talk about, I the, the plot line is muddying itself a little bit. Yeah, it is. Should we just dive into it? Yeah, please. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our, our last title for this week. Titans number six. Tamaran, in the past. Coriander, a.k.a. Starfire, is a little girl pointing at the city and telling her mother how beautiful it is. Xander interrupts Queen Lander, stating her presence is required in the council chambers. While the queen enters the council chambers, Xander takes Coriander to see her sister. The Citadel is attacked on behalf of the Dominators, and Coriander's parents are killed. Coriander is taken prisoner, tortured, experimented on, and finally enslaved. Eventually, Coriander saved herself. Now, Starfire is chasing down the Black Adam hybrid. Titan's Tower. Detective Chimp and Dr. Clancy are examining Wolf Batman. They discover that the infection is entirely dependent on the foreign organisms inside of him. The only way to bring back the infected is by drawing out the organisms inside of them. Suddenly, the tower's computer recognizes a titan at the main gate. It is Tempest. Emergency entry is granted. Tempest allows Brother Eternity and a horde of beasts to enter the tower. Detective Chimp takes Dr. Clancy and her children to the safe room in the basement, while Nightwing and Batgirl fight off the hybrids invading the tower. Starfire breaks off pursuit of Black Adam, leaving him in the capable hands of the Captain and Mary Marvel. Brother Eternity orders Tempest to find his friends and kill them except for the one that he needs. 
Brother Eternity turns to Wolf Batman and tells him to growl all he wants. He plans to kill all the young heroes once they have helped him. Back in the corridor, Nightwing and Batgirl continue to battle the hybrids. Suddenly, the room fills up with water, and they know Tempest is there. Nightwing tells Batgirl to keep her head above water. They need to lead Tempest to Corridor B. Suddenly, a spore enters Nightwing's mouth. Starfire arrives at Titan's Tower and finds Brother Eternity. Starfire demands to know how Brother Eternity knew about the Necrostar. Brother Eternity transforms into the Tamaranian Xander. Xander states if he knew how much trouble Starfire was going to be, he would have killed her instead of having her enslaved. To be continued. So, like I was saying, Drew, I'm fine with the story, I guess, being about, uh, you know, a former rival enemy of Coriander. That's fine. But what is the story about, Drew? Is it about Brother Eternity? Just surprise, it's not really Brother Blood, it's a Tamaranian. Is it about Gar? Because I thought it was going to be, I know Beast Boy is, in a sense, the focus of the story because he's infecting everyone, but like... It, it's felt slightly ironically drew despite everybody becoming beasts right he's he has felt somewhat of an afterthought to the story is it amanda waller is it dr hate what, like i i feel like all of a sudden we're trying to tell too many different stories and like incorporate too many different things i agree with you it felt like feels like tom taylor had his story and then a bunch of other people decided to insert their stuff into the story to spin out into other stuff that's what it feels like to me. But the thing is, is he wrote both of these, Drew. So unless unless editorial is really messing with what he's trying to do, which is possible, I'm not going to say that that's impossible. It's his story, and so I, I'm I'm a little bit confused as to what the story is that he's wanting to tell. It was focused in the beginning, but it's kind of getting convoluted. Honestly, when I first started reading the story, what I thought was happening was the fact that. Gar is connected to the red, and I figured that's why the spores were turning people into beasts, because of his connection to the red. But then we've got possibly Amanda Waller being behind it, or is it Brother Eternity who's really Xander for Tamarin? Is he behind it? Or is it Dr. Hate who's behind it? See, it's, it's all getting convoluted on who's actually behind this. What is the story? What is the story that we're trying to tell? I talked about the first couple issues of the main book I was in on. I loved the getting Ivan Reese and the artwork. I love his artwork so much. It felt like an event comic. But in the last couple things that we've been doing, and especially with the side stuff just being sort of X turns into an animal, I feel like that we've lost the thread. Like, what are we doing? And I think they could. I think they can course correct, Drew. I think it can become clear, but the middle part of this is not doing it for me. Agreed. All right, well, that wraps up our comic books talk for this week. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk Sweet Tooth. We are the Cigar Nerds, bringing nerdy sophistication and geeky indulgence on all topics, including movies, video games, science, and pop culture news, all from the Nerd Cave Cigar Lounge. Find us on iTunes, Stitchers, Google Play, and wherever fine podcasts are found, including ESONetwork.com and CigarNerdPodcast.com. So fire up a cigar. It's time to get nerdy. Pardon the interruption. We'll bring you back to your podcast in just a moment. But first, promo for the Cosmic Pizza Podcast. In the Cosmic Pizza Podcast, your pizza delivery guys, Dan, Sean, and Paul, serve you a slice of life. As we discuss literally anything in the universe. Conspiracy theories? Movies that we've liked. Women in comedy, voice actors, film directors and producers, authors. But what we don't talk about is pizzas. Wednesday I'm here with you people. It's wild. And we're back. Let's talk Sweet Tooth, Season 2, Episode 5, What It Takes. General Abbott makes an example out of Gus for trying to escape by cutting off one of his antlers. When Gus is returned to the other hybrids... Wendy assures him it will grow back. Dr. Singh discovers that the cure does not work. Something must have changed overnight. Ronnie proposes using this information to expose the general's deception to the other leaders, hoping they can escape in the chaos. Becky infiltrates a camp serving for hybrids, but finds the animal army instead. Jeopard's ice cream truck breaks down, so he has to continue on foot. 
In a flashback sequence, we learn that Jeopard's family is dead. When it's feeding time, the hybrids spring a trap on their feeder. They escape through the open door. With the limited supply of the cure, General Abbott proposes the city of Evergreen to the other leaders, asking them only to bring 150 of their best people. When one of the hybrids gets discovered, Gus causes a distraction so the others can get away. Gus comes across General Abbott's meeting and tells the other leaders that hybrids are not their enemy, the sickness is. The General's brother, John, helps Gus escape. General Abbott makes a deal with Helen to eliminate the other leaders and take their resources. Jeopard makes a deal with the last men to give them information about an attack in exchange for Gus. Bobby shows up and recognizes Big Man. Jeopard fights back against the last men, giving Bobby a chance to escape. General Abbott confronts John about helping Gus escape. Gus is reunited with Big Man. A plane parachutes a walkie-talkie for General Abbott. Knock, knock is scratched on the front. Obviously, in no way a surprise outcome for Big Man's backstory, but definitely still heartbreaking to visually see the story, him finding his family. I have to admit, Drew, I wasn't expecting him to physically find them in the worst sense possible. Yeah, I was surprised that we got Jeopard and Gus reunited in this episode. I wasn't expecting it yet, which is kind of cool to see. And the other thing we see Jeopard do is he claims Gus as his son. So we find out that Big Man's family has died and he claims Gus as his son in this episode. We basically see the end of one chapter and the beginning of another. Yeah. I also loved seeing the unveiling of what the general's really wanting to do and uh, continuing to really see that, like, despite, you know, the big kind of cult of personality that he's trying to build around himself with the last men, that he is still essentially a scared little man who needs other people to help him, right? I've loved what they've done with his character this season. And then we've talked about it all season, but continuing the diverging paths of the doctor and his wife uh, really came to a head this episode. And I I don't think that that's going to have a happy ending this season, Drew. I don't think it is either. So it's it's getting really interesting. Oh, and I, I'm happy to see Gus reunited with Big Man. All right. Well, that wraps up our show for this week. Do you have a shout out, Cletus? Yeah, we were talking about him in our first comic so I did a little bit of research real quick. Black Spider, Drew, first popped up in Detective Comics number 463 in 1967, created by Jerry Conway and Ernie Chan. Just like we saw in in the comic, was addicted to drugs, killed his own father, and that sort of, you know, turned him into this vigilante that, you know, to prevent what ha- happened to him to others. Really interesting, Drew. So we both knew that he was a pre-existing character, but much older than I thought. 1967, uh, sorry, 1976. Pretty, um, he's been around. Yeah, that's much older than I thought he was too. All right, and for my shout out, I'm going to shout out about um, DC comic I found. I was, I was in an antique mall over the weekend and uh, they had some comics there. So I was looking through them i came across a star trek printed by dc comics i totally forgot that dc had a license for star star trek for a while and i came across an issue that i once had in my collection i don't know what happened to it but when i saw it i'm like wait a minute i used to have this comic it was from june 1987 it was it was star trek number 39 and it was the return of harry mudd i don't know if you know anything about star trek but Harry Mudd was a character that was in the original series back in the 60s, Cletus. And uh, I specifically remember this issue because it had some comedy in it. I re- I thought it was a funny issue. And uh, so I ended up picking it up because I used to have this one and some other DC Star Trek comics. I don't know what happened to them. I don't know if I lost a box of comics from when I was younger or maybe my mom got rid of them, maybe. <laughs> So, I, I don't know, but I was surprised when I came across it, and I was like, oh, yeah, I totally forgot DC did Star Trek comics for a while. So, I, I, I found that interesting. All right, if you'd like to comment on anything we've talked about this week, you can reach us at our feedback line, 
855-8411. Leave us a message, text us, or you can email us at earthstationdcu at gmail.com. All right, Cletus, coming up next week, we've got Fire and Ice, Welcome to Smallville, Birds of Prey, Blue Beetle, Batman, Poison Ivy, Shazam, and Sweet Tooth. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.